Charlie Finley, born in 1918, was a highly successful businessman that is more famous for being the owner of the athletics baseball franchise. He was a maverick owner that revolutionized the sport. Charlie O. purchased the Kansas City A's in 1960, and little did he know, there was a pitcher on his team that was just as much of a character as he was. I'm a Venice, California-born, Los Angeles-based sports fan, one that has played, coached, announced, and promoted sports my whole life. My love affair with sports started in my own backyard and has led me to this podcast. Thanks to the support of the Amateur Athletic Union in East Bay, I'm excited to bring you Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Hello, Sports Storians. Welcome to Audio Video Podcast, episode number 36 of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon, part two of our four-part series on the remarkable life of Norm Bass. Hope everybody's doing okay. Hey, if you missed part one, you, of course, can watch or listen to it. The link is on our website at sportsstoriespodcast.com. The previously mentioned Charlie Finley, if you don't know about him, is well worth your time looking up. Yep, quite a character. And as you might have noticed in part one of this series, Norm Bass is no slouch in that area himself. Before we go much further, we need to say hello to the producer of the top video podcast in the Sentinel Adobe Corridor, the director of the SSDL5 slate of shows on YouTube, the 1993 Nike Volleyball Festival Championship Division, first place winner, my quarantine partner for life, Christine Jimbo. Hey there, everybody. I'm here to remind you to get to our social media uh, and post, like, subscribe, and you can get there by going to sportsstoriespodcast.com, and that's our website, has links to all the sites you need to get to. Also, coming very, very soon, within the next week, is the East Bay Store, the Mm -hmm. Sports Stories East Bay Store, and to promote that, we're hosting a raffle each week. Mm -hmm. Yep, and so all you have to do to enter the raffle is subscribe to our YouTube channel, that's Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Mm-hmm. And leave a comment on one of our videos this week. We have videos that post every day. We go live at 5, mm-hmm. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. And have our Thursday podcast uh, that you're listening to right now. So go ahead and go onto our YouTube site and leave a comment, subscribe, and you are in the raffle. Yep. And please follow me on Twitter at Sports Stories DL. Norm Bass is quite simply as fun and as interesting as a person as I've ever met. In this episode, we will cover some more ground with Norm. Ground that includes Norm being part of the Baseball Hall of Fame because he gave up a dinger to Roger Maris. But don't overlook the fact that he struck out Mickey Mantle just as he predicted when he was a child. And how about Norm meeting the Queen of Soul? Well, like I said in the last intro, the stories are much better coming from Norm. As I also mentioned in the last introduction, I want to recognize Norm's son, Norman Delaney Bass III, author of the book Color Him Father, An American Journey of Hope and Redemption. Background information and images you see on the video podcast come courtesy of the author. By the way, I highly recommend the book. It's a great read. Also, thanks go out to Gus, his family, and the staff at the Coffee Company in Westchester, California for allowing us to interview Norm at his favorite restaurant, So now it's time from the Coffee Company in Westchester, California, where Norm's USA Table Tennis Hall of Fame plaque sits proudly above his favorite table. Here is part two of our interview with the one and only Norm Bass. 
Please note this interview was recorded on February 27th, 2020. The National League had a little bit of a jump on the American League in terms of uh, overall talent, I think. Well, they did days. because yeah. they were uh, the first ones to sign Jackie Robinson right. and this and that. Mm -hmm. So a lot, yeah, a lot of the American League came around late to that. You know who was the last team to get a black player in the American mm, probably League? Probably Boston. Yeah, Boston yeah. Red Sox. It's always Boston. <laughs> guy so named Pumpsy Green. It's a common theme on my uh, on my show, it's this, these Boston people. <coughs> but you know who was the first NBA team to put five black players on the court? Might have been Boston. Boston again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's because Red liked to win. Yeah, he, uh, he wasn't yeah. interested in what you looked like. Yeah, he, he was more interested in winning than anything. So tell me a little bit about being up in uh, – now you're living in Kansas City, obviously, full-time. And um, I read somewhere where you're throwing over 100 miles an hour at this point. I, I had it up to 100. We wow. didn't have, there wasn't no guns. How, how did they – See, I had an easy motion, but when I got about right here to here is where my speed was. And the batter was kind of relaxed a little bit, and that ball would jump on him. I didn't throw hard back here. I threw mm. from here to here. And this is where you would learn a curveball? Uh, different guys showed me how to throw a slider and this and that. Joe Nuxall showed me how to throw a slider. A guy named Bob Shaw used to show me how to throw a curve, and I didn't know. See, when you're growing up in Vallejo, there was nobody there that was professional. Mm -hmm. They didn't Makes show. Sense. They couldn't teach fundamentals. I didn't even know how to put the foot on the rubber to pitch, man. What? I had it straight away. You're supposed to have it. You're supposed to lift it and turn it. Yeah, sure. I didn't learn. So when I learned that, the fastball got that much faster. Wow, of course it did. Yeah. That's something. I didn't know about a jacket. You're supposed to wear a jacket when you get through pitching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when I went to spring training, I loved the bat. I could hit. Right. And when I first pitched in one of those exhibition games, they told me to go out in the outfield and shag balls. I said, what about the bat? What about he said, pitchers don't hit down in spring training. I said, what do you mean? I'm mad now. So I'm out in left field fussing, and one of them old dudes heard me fussing. He called, he wouldn't got the manager. He manager, it's a young dude out here think he's supposed to hit, and he's out here fussing his butt off. And so they got on the microphone and they called my name. They said, Norm, come up to hit. We're in a game. I Norm came Bass. up. I came up to bat, and they all the people were looking. I hit a ball on top of the palm tree. <laughs> yeah, just got lucky and hit it on top of the palm tree. And that day on, all the pitchers batted. Yeah, I changed all that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> now, so what, what's really interesting is um, you're a big personality, but so is this Charlie Finley. And he just – it's right around this time he buys the Kansas City A's. And now, for those that don't know who Charlie Finley is – He's probably one of the most influential owners in the history of baseball. Yeah. He's like a maverick type of guy. He, he eventually introduced the designated hitter, night games to the World Series, but he also had all this crazy stuff going on to bring ticket, to, to, to ticket well, sales. Well, he tried to put monuments in center field, <laughs> graves and all that, because the Yankee Stadium, they got graves yeah. out there in center, but it's big, and he wanted to do the same thing. They wouldn't let him. So he had a bunch of little kids – dressed up like shepherds and he put sheep on the other side of the, of the fence and they would be up there with the sheep and he would paint them green red he would do all that stuff it's hilarious i um what i could ascertain is he liked you a lot because you were self-assured and confident much like him and he took a liking to you and and he really seemed to but see, i also got along with his kids we were i was only oh. 22 and they was right around about my age i okay. used to play catch with his oldest boy and mm. He couldn't play, but I used to play catch with him, mm -hmm. and we were real good friends, so he liked all that. Mm. 
He, he had a zoo out behind left field or something like that? Huh? Like he'd have animals out behind left field for people well, to Well, he come. had the sheep up there. <laughs> then he bought that, that mule, Charlie O, he called him. The mule would walk around the ballpark with a big sign on it. Yeah, he was, he was a, a maverick. <laughs> That's the best. He was an insurance salesman. He sold more insurance than anybody in the world. Right. That's how he got his money. And then he got his money, and he, he bought half the team, and then he bought the other half, and, he's, and he was full He owner. lived in Gary, Indiana, Indiana uh, right outside of Chicago. Sure. And every time we beat Chicago, he would give you $100 cash, all ones. <laughs> <laughs> Stripper money, huh? And, he had, and when we had dinner out there, he had, a, he had steaks. He had a professional cooks out there cooking these steaks. Oh, he was something else. How come he gets? He does get a bad rap with some of his employees, and but not necessarily as players. Well, if you if you don't produce now, mm. now he take money back from you, <laughs> in which I thought that was right. I didn't see nothing wrong with it. I was called <laughs> me and him agreed. I give you a hundred thousand dollars and you don't play. Give me the money back, right? <laughs> give me the money back, and Finley would take the money back, and that's a no no because the union come in there and. These guys get $30 million a year, next year still guaranteed. That, that wasn't true with Finley. He upset your manager, though, Joe, Go- uh, Joe Gordon, right? Oh, yeah. It, yeah. Because he basically was telling Gordon, I guess, to pitch you? Well, what had happened was Joe Gordon was respected as a renowned manager. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he, was a, he, was, he was a manager, and, the, and the, the general manager was known also. Hmm. They determined that they was going to send me to the minor league. Mm-hmm. And they wasn't going to let you have to pitch. You have to, in order to make the team, you got to be there more than 30 days. I see. After 30 days, they sent out who they want to send out, and that's the roster. And they, 29 days had passed, and I hadn't pitched yet. So Finley said, I want to see him pitch. So I come to the ballpark, and there's the ball sitting on my locker, on my bench, mm-hmm. on my chair. That means that you are the pitcher, but they didn't tell me that. I was up all night, pissed off, going to the nightclub. I don't drink, but I'm playing music all night because I'm getting ready to go to the minor league. Uh-huh. I go to the ballpark, and I'm, I'm pitching. I'm really pissed off. So I get in the game, and at this point, no pitcher on our team had won and went the distance yet. That particular game, I went the distance. You gave who, up two runs. Who would you pitch against? Minnesota. Okay. I gave up two runs. And they still was going to send me out. And so Finley said, wait a minute. This is the only guy I got can win a game. How, why were you sending <laughs> right. out? He don't know nothing about strategy. But because I had an option, they got a thing called an option. Mm-hmm. If you are called up to the big leagues and don't make the team, they got three options to send you back and nobody can get you. And I had options. That's why they were going to send me out, not because I couldn't play. Right. And so Finley overruled them. And they got into a feud And with I can me. imagine. And he's the and owner. I, and I make headlines. And Bass gets one more chance. I ain't did nothing. <laughs> and they said, we're going to. And so they said, well, we're going to let him pitch one more game and see what he looked like. So they put me in the game in Chicago. I go seven. We got beat on the error. Mm. I got pitched a great game. They couldn't say anything. And that went on for about two months. Mm. Then they said, well, we're going to put him in the game in Washington. I go out there and pitch a shutout. <laughs> Jeez. So that went on. So I make headlines. So finally, when all that settled, that's when I realized I was in the big league. That's when the excitement came down. There's um, something that uh, anybody's listening to this or knows you from the Y will understand. You're a little bit of a woofer. Oh, yeah. Now, and I wasn't the first one, but I talked more than anybody that, that played. Though. 
This is from your uh, son's book. This was the time period when Junior became a draft uh, practitioner in the art of talking shit. The element <laughs> of woofing was nothing revolutionary, particular for amateur and professional Negro athletes. Riling and distracting an opponent with personal insults, needling and prodding an opposer to the point of fisticuffs was the ultimate goal. The roots of baseball smack had been firmly grounded in the Negro Leagues. Where yeah. um, did this um, all come from? Is it a little bit of your childhood, a little bit of what you saw? Well, it was it, growing up, they had a thing called the Dozens. The Dozens. And it, that means that you talk about another guy's mama. Okay. And if you do that in the black race, you would get killed. Okay. But you also had to be this good to do that. And I was pretty good with this. Good with the fisticuffs. So it wasn't just the talking. I could handle this also. Sure. And I was bigger than most of them guys, so they had to take it. So when I got to baseball, they had nothing changed. That was my personality. So I talked to these guys. I said, no, since you're playing tonight, man, you ain't going to be able to hit this smoke. I would tell them guys all that. <laughs> and then when I strike out a guy, I said, man, take it on back to the dugout. Don't look what you're looking. Don't look back. <laughs> and I'd be talking all that. And they had never heard that kind of stuff. <laughs> they heard a little bit of the wolf, but not much. Yeah, yeah, I like it. <laughs> and I was doing that but winning. But winning. Now, did your teammates um, – I'm sure your te- – if I was your teammate, I would love this. Yeah, they I, did. Right? But, I mean, were there some people who pushed back? No, they didn't have enough. To, they couldn't talk enough. Okay. They had a little bit of thing, but they couldn't do enough. Okay. Anything they could get on me, they loved that, but they couldn't get nothing. We interrupt this podcast to bring you a commercial. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon aims to bring its subscribers interesting, unique, and uplifting stories. You can find us at sportsstoriespodcast.com. We drop audio, video podcasts every Thursday and go live at 5 on YouTube four nights a week. That's Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. And now back to our interview. Something that um, when I think about it and, you, and that place you had in history there, and when I say, I want to make sure our listeners know, when I talk about the Kansas City A's, they're the precursor to the Oakland Athletics. Okay. So, they're, you know, um, they're up there. But you're in the American League, and so you're visiting Yankee Stadium. And, I mean, that must have been something. I mean, growing up, a baseball fan, my ultimate goal, I, mean, I, I knew I wouldn't be a pro baseball player, but I knew I was going to go to Yankee Stadium just well, to see when it. I was, when I was about seven, eight years old, me and my sister were close. Mm. She's about a year and a little bit younger than me, but we were close. And my brother, he was the oldest brother, so we were, he wasn't close to, like we were. Mm-hmm. And I used to tell her all the time, I said, Dorothy, I'm going to pitch in the big leagues one day. Mm. And she used to say, won't you stop that? I said, I'm going to pitch it. I'm going to strike Mickey Mantle out. That's what I told her. At seven years old. Look out. So when I got to New York, I'm on the mound. I'm pitching. And Mantle came to the plate, struck him out. I said, I got the Mick. I got the Mick. I got him. Black out. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, I struck him out the first time I saw him. And I balled my fist up. And because I, I knew my sister, I used to tell her that. I said, I got him. Got him. <laughs> and and you got you got the Mick, um, but but Roger Maris is also in that lineup. Yeah, uh, in that first game in New York, he didn't do nothing. Okay. He went over three. Uh huh. But he got me in Kansas City. He got you. Got me good. And, and this was in 1961. 1961, July, home run number 27. Man, you don't forget. You don't. You don't. forget none of that. I I I don't forget it because I did the research last night. You don't forget <laughs> it because you did it like 60 years ago. <laughs> but it's unbelievable. Uh, that's what so, the son said to but, me. But of of the um, so for those who don't know, um, 
Babe Ruth had the most hallowed record, which was 60 home runs in a season. And in 1961, Roger Maris was on fire, and he was – everybody was speculating whether or not he would get to 61 home runs. So it was, what do you get, 61 and 61? And the difference was, I think the Babe only played maybe 142 games or something. 154. 154. And then and this, we played 162. And so he got, he got those eight extra games. So that was some hubbub, and they talked about the asterisk and so forth. But nonetheless, it was a great achievement. And um, even though he took you deep, your name is going to be cemented in history forever. I'm in, I'm as, in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, right. Like, I'm, I'm listed it's, it's all listed. the pitcher that threw it up there. I'm That's in the fantastic. Hall of Fame. Big list, number 27. That's me. so cool. Nice. It is. It's, but, you know, almost, at the time. Do you, do you remember that, the, um, that oh, at bat? I, I, I remember what happened there. I threw a fastball by his knees. He was a low ball hitter. Yeah. He hit that thing over the wall, over the back wall, and landed on top of a barbecue <laughs> joint over there. Oh, yeah. He hit it a mile. But at the time he hit the home run, nobody would have ever thought that he was going to go on and do all this. Okay. Because 27, that's yeah. a long ways from 60. Sure is. Because he didn't hit 61 until the last game of the, last season. Game of the season. But at that time, and just think how smart some of these guys are. He played in Kansas City, Roger Maris. He hit 16 home runs the year before I got there. Mm. 16. Hmm. But the ballpark is 350. 370, 420, big, big ballpark. Mm-hmm. Yankee Stadium, 301 down the right yeah, line, right, a little right. short fence. So they visualized if we take this guy, he's a pull hitter, mm-hmm. and put him in New York, those fly balls will be home runs. That's right. And that's what they did with him. Okay. He was a warning track hitter in Kansas City. You know, he hit the, they catch the ball. Mm-hmm. But in New York, he was a power hitter. Only because the ballpark is small. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And he hit that last one, if I remember right, in, uh, right over that 301-foot. Like Tracy the last Stollard one. was the guy. That, that pitched that one? That threw up the home run. Hmm. But, see, I get letters from kids, fan mail. I get about 15 a month. And here it is 400 years later when I played. <laughs> and the kids still write. I, I just showed you one. This is, yeah. a, this is one here. Oh, that's what? Let me see. That's a fan mail letter. This is the one right here. Can I, can I take a look pre- at it? So this is when you're on the Kansas City A's, right? That's when they sent those pictures. They want me to sign them. Let's see. Dear and Mr. Bass, I'm a big baseball fan. Yes. So this is, uh, let's see, 61, 63. So this is a current. Um, so they sent this. They sent it to uh, the last, uh, this week. And it's, and it's uh, from Kingwood, Texas. It says, I'm a big baseball fan, <clears throat> a real big A's fan. I follow the. Uh, I follow the team closely and know a lot of the history of the franchise in teams and players in Philadelphia, Kansas City, and in Oakland. So, for those that don't know, it, the athletics started in Philadelphia, yeah. then Kansas City, then Oakland over the years. Uh, congratulations on your A's playing and pitching career. I know you played for Kansas City for three years from 61 to 63. I was hopeful that you could autograph the enclosed baseball. Oh, cards baseball cards uh, from me to, so I can add them to my A's collection. That's awesome. Those are uh, the four pictures I showed you. I'd greatly appreciate it and have also enclosed a stamped return envelope for you. <laughs> All right. Let's get smart. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to sign them for me. And most sincerely, Michael, that's awesome. Norm. Sometime I get a letter from China or Japan or Somewhere and, in the world. But I averaged about 15 a month. You know, I didn't play till the 60s, man. Yeah. And I'm getting these letters here from these kids. That is that I is signed every one that of is them. You, that is something. I, um, I grew up as, uh, when I was young, and me and, my, me and my buddy at the time, we played a game called Stratomatic. 
and it represented every baseball team in the league on, okay. on these cards, and you would roll dice, and the pitcher would oppose the hitters. And so if you rolled a six, it would go to the hitter. Or and so it was one black dice and two white. And, and it really played out statistically, but it taught you the game of baseball. And I know that's how I learned rosters from baseball teams oh, yeah. long ago. And I could only imagine being like a baseball fan like that. And then, and then you go, okay, I could write this guy. You know, you know it really brought you closer to, to you the through, through, to the game and then to the person through statistics, which is at the heart of baseball. Well, they, they even send letters and want me to sign it this way. Norm Bass, number 27. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Roger Maris, they want me to sign that. Yeah. yeah, they want me because they got a, uh, a signature of every pitcher who threw up a home run that year. That he funny. only got beat one time, but some <laughs> pitchers he got three or four times. Yes, sir. He sure did. But, sir. you know, sometimes they, they'll, they'll send a letter and they'll say, if, if I send you some photos, a picture of you, would you sign them? Mm-hmm. And I'll write back and tell them, yeah, I'll sign it. So this guy sent a box. What if they send it to you and they don't give you a, a, a self-addressed envelope? <laughs> oh, they, 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 they send money for, for me to buy the stamps. <laughs> okay. They put 20. Oh, so nice. this guy, I told the guy, okay. So he sends a box. Uh-huh. 200 pictures was in there. Oh, my goodness. And he had, it was 10 by 12. <laughs> and I said, dang, this cat want me to sign all this? But right up under the car was about three dollars $400. <laughs> I didn't ask for no money, but he slipped that in there. All right, well. Okay. And they do that stuff. Yeah. But that's been going on for quite a while. Norm, um, so, and and I could talk baseball all day, but you got, you got so much more to your life. I want to make sure I get, I get to some of this. Um, a really interesting period of time I see is during the um, 60s. Uh, your brother's playing for the Rams. You're playing for the Kansas City A's. And you got a group of friends, and you're over there in where, where St. Elmo meets La Brea, uh, pretty much that area. And it's, it becomes this kind of touch point for culture at that time. So if you're a black athlete or entertainer, you're coming to your guys' neighborhood for the great parties and the great fun, um, and you guys named yourself the Black Pack. Right, we, we had we had a party every day in that place. <laughs> we played poker every single day at St. Elmo Drive. The women in Los Angeles said they would never be caught in there. Right, and every time you look around, there's one that said that she's sitting <laughs> right up in there because they just had to know what we was doing up in there. Right, <laughs> the neighbors passed a piece of paper around a petition to get us barred from the place. The owner come down there and Dick gave him a couple of tickets to the Ram game, and he said, "Go ahead and do what we want to." So we cut a hole in the in the wall with a saw and made it so we could run through the apartment. <laughs> and that guy let us do all that kind of stuff. Every black entertainer, uh, sports or whatever it was, has come through there. So I knew everybody that was a musician, everybody who was a player. The only white dude that come through that man that didn't give a damn about that was Paul Hornick. Paul Hornick. Yeah. And he, who, who, on a, oh, he on dated a two, black on a, on, women. Oh, he did. Well, but on a two-win football team, he wins the Heisman? Like, Notre Dame won two games that year, and he won the Heisman. Yeah, well, that's, hmm. that's what they were doing yeah, in they were day. just giving that thing away. Now, to how do you go play football and Jim Brown didn't win the Heisman? That's crazy How talk. did Gail Sayers not win the crazy Heisman? Crazy talk. Okay, well, you yeah. keep going further and further. Yeah. Um, so, so the Black Pack's running the game. One of the things, uh, I saw some story about, you getting kind of, you know, identified by LAPD and having to walk the line. I know you don't drink, 
but they made you walk the line. But it was right out front of Johnny's Pastrami. And, and, you, and you, I think you were saying that that's where – that's a place in Culver City, right? No. It, it's a different this, place? The walk on the line was not me. It was my brother. Oh, it was your brother. And it was up on Adams and uh, Crenshaw. Mm. And him and a guy named Alvin Hall was in the car. Okay. They drunk. And in them days, they when they drunk, it wasn't no breathalyzer and all that. They made you walk a line to see how can you walk straight. Mm-hmm. Dick walked about three blocks on the line, didn't miss a stroke. <laughs> now he's drunk. The cop got mad and tore up the ticket. <laughs> he didn't miss a stroke. <laughs> oh, boy, I'm gonna name a, a few people, uh, Norman, and, and say what you will be. I, I was just, um, it's unbelievable to think of all these people coming through at this time. So, Wilt Chamberlain. Oh, yeah. We knew Will. Hank Aaron? Hank. I knew Aaron, Hank in spring training. Red Fox. Hank offered me some money. For what? For the one of the women I had down in Florida. <laughs> she looked that good. He offered me some money. But Red Fox, we were just like that. Red Fox? Funniest man I ever met in my life. It, besides. Well, I, well he, was I, a, he was a character, Red yeah. Fox. I wow. Mean, uh, yeah. So, okay, uh, Aretha Franklin. Uh-oh. <laughs> now you done started something okay that's all right we got time we got time no, i got no, time no. If you I, got I, time. what you want to know uh, the book in, indicates that maybe you're dating were you dating well, what it, what had happened well we was on about an 18 game day homestand mm-hmm. and we had kansas city i don't know her and i could walk from the hotel i was living in a black hotel to the ballpark mm. So I'm coming down the sidewalk, and it started raining. When it rained in Kansas City, that's it. You, you know the game is rain out. Mm-hmm. So in order for me to get out of the rain, I ducked up into this little nightclub called the Mardi Gras. Mm. And lo and behold, she's appearing in there. Wow. But I don't know her. But there's another lady I did know was in there. She said, I'm having a block party this coming weekend. I want you to come, and I want you to bring Aretha with it. Mm. I said, I don't know Aretha. She said, well, let, let me fix that up. So she introduced me to her when she got through singing. And she didn't feel like talking or nothing. She was all sweating and everything. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, let me do it. I said, here's my number here. You call me tomorrow. We get together. So I gave her my phone number. She don't call. Now, I'm mad now. See, I'm mad. I'm bad. I'm the man. I'm mad. <laughs> so I'm walking down the street. And I run into her. Lo and behold, I bumped into her. And I called her a bunch of names and everything. And it was a record that came out by a guy named Chuck Jackson. And I asked her, had she heard that record yet? And she said, no, but you could put a quarter in the record machine and play six records almost, just like that. Mm-hmm. So I put it in there, and I'm on the way to the ballpark. And she listened to that, and she hummed and listened to it, and about two times she had the whole song down. She mm-hmm. liked it. So I said, well. What, what song? Yeah, I'll Wake Up Crying was Wake the up. name of it. Okay. And she liked the song also. So I told her, I said, well, you know, uh, I'm pitching tonight, and why don't you and your manager, she had a manager, a lady named Sue, mm-hmm. come to the game, and you can come out there and watch to see what I do. She said, well, I'm not going to be able to do it because I got to sing. I said, what time is it you have to go on? She said, 10 o'clock. I said, oh, the game started at 6, <laughs> and it almost be over or close to it. So anyway, I said, I'll leave the tickets. You do whatever you're going to do. So I go to the game. We play in Baltimore that day. I'm, I'm nasty that day. I'm pissed. <laughs> I don't, and not because I'm thinking she's going to be there, but I had all my stuff working. Two to two going in the 10th, and we beat them three to two. Mm. I come in the nightclub that night. Great big spotlight caught me at the door. 
And I heard in the background, my man, my man, this is my man. I'm going to dedicate this whole night to this guy. So I come wow. in there, and she sung to me and everything. Oh, wow. And then when she got through, she, I, she said, I got a surprise for you. I said, what you got? She said, I got a suite <laughs> that I took out on top of the, the hotel. We in there. We go in there, and she got this record on this little machine, and she's playing that record. Oh, uh, look out. And all night that went through with that. Oh, all right. And she's singing to me, man. Wow. <laughs> That's a that's an unbelievable story. That's great. But when the deal was over, when she had to leave, there's where the story get really good. Oh. She got ready to leave. She wouldn't get in the limo. This is two in the morning. Okay. She didn't cry. Oh, I don't want to leave him crying and all that. Wouldn't get in there. So I had to coax her in there. She'd break her loose and run down the sidewalk. Wouldn't get in there. Finally, she left. So, so when so. I get home, I tell all the boys about this story. <laughs> Yeah, and they don't want to hear. It. They say he lying again. He I said no. <laughs> <laughs> so I come home about twelve of them was out there that day, and I didn't know something was up. And they took me and put me in the car, and they driving down the street. They they say we're gonna find you out tonight. <laughs> I said what's happening? She says Aretha's appearing right down here tonight at a club called the Hideaway in in L.A. In L.A. I didn't know that. So we go down there, and on the way down there, I had to do something. So I said when she see if she see me. She's going to stop playing and run through the crowd and jump on my neck and cry like a baby. And they said, man, you still won't you stop. So we go in there, and lo and behold, she's playing the organ. And she saw me coming through the crowd. She stopped, cried like a baby, ran and jumped on my neck. I didn't know she was going to do that. I hadn't seen her in a couple of years. That is fantastic. Yeah, she did that. Now they're mad. <laughs> now they're real mad. <laughs> they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, they're mad. Oh, that's something else, Norm. And so the boys don't want to hear that story. No, they get, they get to hear it now. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is supported by the AAU. Find a local event and join at aausports.org. And remember, you can catch your favorite amateur sports live stream, replays, and highlights at ballertv.com. Sports Stories, along with East Bay, supports the Heroes Movement, a nonprofit that bridges the gap from mental or physical therapy to getting strong again through strength and conditioning workouts. This free service is available for any veteran of the United States Armed Forces. Visit heroesmovementusa.org for more information. Sports Stories, along with thousands of people across the country, also supports the My Stuff Bags Foundation a nonprofit that provides traumatized children with new belongings and new hope. Learn more at mystuffbags.org. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is a production of Sports Stories, Inc. and is available on Apple Podcasts and YouTube or wherever you listen and watch. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. You can find all our social media links, archives, and other info on our website at sportsstoriespodcast.com. Special thanks to the John R. Wooden Course and Wooden's Wisdom. Original music for Sports Stories is courtesy of Lennon Music Productions. Original images by Sienna Lennon Photography. Sports Stories is produced by Christine Jimbo and Marley Rice. Sports Stories is edited by Bob McCall. Additional staff include Ray Castro, Teresa Dolan, Jake Downey, Carlos Haro, and Buck Magic Lennon. Bernie, calm down. Well, it seems to me you lived your life like the candle in the wind. 
always watching sports stories to the very end. Well, I would have liked to have known you, but I was just a kid. Your candle burned out long before sports stories ever did. Sports stories with Danny Lennon. Catch it at five. I catch it across the pond. Check it out, book!